0: but the message, Eugene Peterson, it's a paraphrase of the Bible that he wanted for his congregation out in Kalispell, Montana, to uh, be able to grasp the, the scriptures a little more. Uh, he's passed away some years ago now, but some wonderful uh, insights as well. I want to throw a few images up on the screen this morning of Joseph, and uh, this, the title of the message today is Biblical Manhood, Biblical Manhood and i have to say there's a whole there's a whole cottage industry within the church uh, evangelical church on uh, what makes for biblical manhood and biblical womanhood and some of the stuff, quite frankly, is more about baptizing fallen culture and putting Jesus' peanut butter over it versus asking, what does the Bible actually say? And so I think that's something we need to wrestle with, but I don't have time to do all that today. But Joseph certainly is a model of biblical manhood, and we want to explore what are some of the things we learn about Joseph in the few verses that are about him within the Bible. Here's one image of Joseph here holding the baby as Mary is resting and recovering uh, in, in sort of this classic idea of a lower level of the house, which probably would have been what the manger or the, the, the stable where they were born is, because most in those Palestinian homes at this time, you would have had the, uh, maybe a two-story or on the side of a hill home, but the lower story was where the animals were, so you'd benefit from the heat, you'd benefit from all of that he would benefit from the dung and the heat off of that as well. And then the living quarters were in the upper level. So there was no room in the living quarters. They were probably in this lower level of a, an ancient home. Uh, let's throw this other image up. This is, this is a, an 18th century French uh, printmaker, Antoine uh, Alexandre Morel. I never took French. So if I murdered that, my apologies for those of you Francophones in the room. Um, so Joseph is here gazing at this writ of divorce in this picture. He's considering drawing up against the betrothed Mary, and he's decided not to condemn her publicly, but to divorce her quietly. And Morel uh, places this sprig of lilies uh, across Joseph's lap to remind us of his faithfulness, alluding to uh, Hosea 14.5, the just man shall blossom like the lily. What will he choose, the lilies or the writ of divorce? Uh, One person commenting on this uh, painting notes. I don't want to throw up one more here, sort of a modern St. Joseph uh, picture. And we, of course, in Baptist tradition, Protestant tradition, we don't refer to these folks as saints within much of the church. They do refer to Joseph as saint. We say everyone has the potential to be a saint. You're sitting next to a saint this morning. Um, so uh, this one, so it, it, I, Joseph was probably between the ages of... Um, uh, 28 and 49, roughly, maybe younger, maybe uh, more contemporary. Uh, so when the child, this virgin conception takes place, uh, he would have been, been in this age range. He would have been younger. Um, there are some traditions that say he was a really old man, and they were just betrothed and never married. That's sort of the Roman Catholic Eastern Orthodox view. But most Protestants would say, if you look at the different things, he probably was, or even younger, he might have been in that that uh, you know, 18, 19-ish range, which would have been a common range. So getting an image of Joseph that, and I don't know I mean, obviously, we don't know what he actually looked like, but so this artist rendering is another example of that. Uh, so let's get the pictures off the screen, and we're going to move forward uh, this morning with the rest of the text. So biblical manhood, um, Joseph gives us an example. I think that we need to lean into. Joseph is an example of what it, it could mean to be someone who is following God in their life. And we look at some of the things that he does and the choices he makes along the way. So what I want to do is um, point this out as we walk through the text again. And one of the biggest things that we see in the life of Joseph is that there is a relinquishment and a redirection of the power that he has within his society. And this is a constant theme within even these short verses about him. There's a relinquishment or a redirection of the power he has. And he uses the power he has to empower others. In fact, there's a lovely quote by uh, Michael Frost, who's sort of a a provocateur within the Christian world in a good way. And he says this, when male pastors call on us to recover something called biblical manhood, I suspect they're not thinking of the silent, loyal Joseph submitting himself humbly to his wife's God-given calling. That's one example of biblical manhood. I don't know about you, but I occasionally will, will voyeur to watch some Mark Driscoll clips. And I watch it and I see him going and ranting and raving and hemming and hawing and, and, and introducing all of these power over solutions to all the problems. And I think you, on one hand, are using the name of Jesus so loosely, but you're missing the power of Jesus by millions of miles and galaxies away. But Joseph has another model for us to follow. Now, Matthew writes primarily to a Jewish audience. It's believed Matthew's uh, ancient biography or gospel was written more in that direction, whereas Luke is written to a more global audience. And he begins in verse 18 in chapter 1. Now the birth of the Messiah took place in this way. When his mother, Mary, had been engaged to Joseph, but before they lived together, she was found to be pregnant from the Holy Spirit. This introduces this passage to who's ever reading this within that context. Joseph had not been with Mary. And this is a very culturally sensitive but clear way to state this. The author uh, Matthew is telling us there's a pregnancy. We don't know who the father is. Something is up with this. And he tells us right away. The genesis of Jesus, by the way, the the language used here is the same as the beginning of Genesis 1. So Matthew actually parallels the story of Genesis and, and the life of Moses as well. We see John doing some of this as well. Now the birth, the genesis of Jesus, the Messiah took place in this way. Many in Middle Eastern societies, Craig Keener, biblical scholar, says this, many in Middle Eastern societies, many observers simply assume that if a man and a woman were alone together for more than 20 minutes, they have had intercourse. So if you think about this in terms of the cultural expectations, if a man and woman were kept apart, and some of us may still in some of our cultures of origin have some of this, but in this, in, in this context, and even today, in many Middle Eastern societies, if a man and woman are alone for more than 20 minutes, it's assumed they must have had intercourse. So she was found to be pregnant from the Holy Spirit, and then he begins to unpack it. Stanley Hauerwas says this, Incarnation, God becoming human in Jesus, Properly understood means that Jesus' person and work cannot be separated because Jesus saves by making us participants in a new way of life. That way of life is the church. So what we're talking about in God putting on flesh in Jesus, the big picture is this idea of God becoming intimately engaged with his creation, entering into it as part of it. There's more that I want to say about that, but I'm going to move forward here this morning. Verses 19 through 20. But her husband, Joseph, being a righteous man and unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, planned to divorce her quietly. But just when he had resolved to do this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, and so let's look at this ninth thing through 20 verses for a moment, her here for a moment. He was a righteous man. We are told say it with me, righteous man, focus, focus, righteous man. All right. He was quiet. He was probably in pain. And he was quiet and also ending this relationship or or we're told he's resolved to end the betrothal. Now, remember in the ancient Israel context that there was the betrothal and there was a marriage. And betrothal was way more than our engagement. It was binding legally, ceremonially, but the marriage had not taken place yet. And that betrothal period usually was where a young man would also work towards whatever the bride price was, whatever the families agreed on uh, before the the woman would move into his home and, and then they would consummate the marriage sexually. So the betrothal period was illegally binding. And if during that time someone was unfaithful, it was as if they committed adultery. Well, they did commit adultery in that circumstance. And so breaking off that is not like breaking off an engagement today. It's much more serious. It was seen as they are married, all but the consummation of the marriage in preparation of bringing the families together, dealing with whatever financial issues needed to be dealt with during that time as well. But it was a binding covenantal thing and required divorce to get out of. And so he was a righteous man, we're told. And we immediately find out in this passage, what we learn about Joseph, that he was going to divorce her quietly. He was going to, we learn something about him bringing together justice with compassion. And here's the thing, he knew the suffering that would have awaited Mary regardless. A premarital pregnancy would likely ruin any chances of, for her of marrying ever. It's a horrible fate for a woman in an economically and honor-driven, male-centered culture, in a very patriarchal culture, in a very Mark Driscollian ancient, you no, know, sorry, that was, that was too much, Lord forgive me. Uh, in that kind of culture, she would lose so many resources and so much, and so much shame that she could never get out of By publicly taking her to court, which he had the right to do because she was found pregnant and he was not the father, he could have kept her dowry as well and gotten back whatever bride price he had to pay. The economics, he would have actually, instead of the economics evening out, he would come out even better if he took her to court and took the money uh, that was already given, total assets that she and her family brought into the marriage, all of this he could have taken if he would have done a public divorce of her. He could have gone for that and pushed for that. But instead we are told he goes for the take two or three witnesses and offer a a private writ of divorce. He's doing everything in his power to reduce her shame at this point, we are told in verses 19 through 20. Craig Keener notes this again, that Matthew is teaching implicitly that infidelity is always unjust. Unjust. But divorce is just under some circumstances. You didn't know we were going to talk about divorce and marriage here on uh, fourth Sunday of Advent. But here we are, story of Joseph. He said, in fact, if we read Matthew, this passage here with the other passages, teachings on divorce and remarriage, Matthew's actually endorsing the idea that under some cases, divorce is absolutely okay, biblically speaking. He says this, some modern readers of the gospel have treated divorce as sinful regardless of the reason, including cases of adultery, abandonment, or abuse. Keener goes on, he's a biblical New Testament scholar, and he says this, this text challenges that prejudice, inviting readers of Matthew's divorce teaching in chapters 5, verse 32, and chapters 19, 9, to remember Joseph's righteousness and the exception that Matthew's Jewish audience would have understood permitted Joseph divorce and remarriage. And so in this passage, Joseph, who becomes the adoptive father of Jesus, is not condemned for seeking divorce at all for Mary, given what he thinks the circumstances are. That's important to note, by the way, because sometimes churches can get really weird about this. Sometimes marriages die. Sometimes there is abuse, there is adultery, there is abandonment. These are legitimate reasons to say, you know what, this, is, this covenant has been broken, and it's just a sham to pretend that it still is ongoing. So let's move on in this passage here. The first century betrothal, again, was more serious than engagement. In fact, both Jewish and... Mute, unmute, there we go. Okay. Ooh. I'm fully like wired up here between the two shirts, so forget it. All right. <sighs> T-shirt, shirt. Okay. So Keener goes on and talks about Jewish, Jewish Jewish, and Roman law both demanded that a man divorce his wife if she were guilty of adultery. In fact, within the Jewish context and the Roman context, it was required that you should divorce your wife if they're if found guilty of adultery. Why? Well, in Roman law, they treated the husband like a panderer, exploiting his wife as a prostitute if he did not divorce her. So the assumption was that there's some nefarious thing going on here, so you need to divorce her if she's found. Otherwise, we think you're prostituting out your wife. In Jewish law, uh, if he did not, others would assume that, well, he's not divorcing her because he got her pregnant before, and and, well, in Joseph's case, before they consummated, they actually did consummate the marriage before the marriage. And so their reputation, his reputation would be at stake within the Jewish context for the rest of his life, ancient Judaism. Uh, Joseph, you guys did the deed beforehand, and that's a violation of the law, so that shame would be on him and his house for his whole life. Very different than how we think about uh, sex and marriage in, in modern cultures today. But in this sense, that they, that shame would carry with him the whole of his life. Not to mention his family. The fail to divorce would violate the Torah and custom and bring enduring shame. Again, Western values, don't. there's not as much of that kind of thing anymore. There's probably some in some places, but those are reasons why. So... Unlike Matthew, we tend to treat all kinds of divorce harshly and often excuse adultery. Some of the same Christians, Keener goes on, says, who clamor for greater punishment for violent crimes or drug-dealing counsel a betrayed or abused spouses to be perpetually patient as if no consequences were appropriate for the betrayers or the abusers. And this simply is wrong. He goes on and says this, The evil of divorce is in the breaking apart of what God has put together. The evil of divorce is in the breaking apart of what God has put together. But a person who abandons, betrays, or abuses his or her spouse has already done just that, Keener says. Matthew does not permit us to punish the innocent party in a divorce. Yet for Jesus and for Matthew, the exception remains a last resort, not a rationalization just because you're dissatisfied to seek greener pastures. Craig Keener, great stuff there. And sometimes we gloss through this Christmas passage and we don't go down to the depths because, well, that's not that's not glowy candlelight, Pastor. You know, this is but this is part of the Christmas story. So we're told here an angel appears. Angels in Judaism are intermediaries of God's will. We hear that Matthew uh, that Joseph learns from a dream about this as well in these verses. And uh, so, so as we move into this text a little more, I want to just uh, unpack that. So. Sorry, here I just skipped ahead. My uh, my verses there, keener angel dream. Okay, so what is biblical manhood? Well, is it is it loudly calling out people's faults and sins? Is it going full like uh, again? You know, this is just us. Uh, is it going full Mark Driscoll and everybody screaming and shouting, slamming people into walls, doing all of this in the name of God in a church cut? Con- is this is this biblical manhood? Is A friend, no, not a friend, an acquaintance of mine who posted a picture of a Bible with a handgun saying something about this being two things that will protect you kind of thing. Is that biblical manhood? What we see here in Joseph, number one, I want to say there's a few things I want to point out about biblical manhood. Number one is biblical manhood is using the strength you have to show mercy and be present to those who are outside the bounds of cultural norms. He shows mercy here. Joseph shows mercy. So the first thing I want to say about biblical manhood is that Joseph shows mercy. Stanley Hauerwas says this, one of the great enemies of the gospel is sentimentality. And the stories surrounding Jesus' birth have often proven to be material for maudlin sentiment. Matthew's account of Jesus' conception and birth is unapologetically realistic. Joseph, not Mary, is the main actor. John Chrysostom, that ancient preacher... He praised Joseph as a man of exceptional self-restraint. He had to be free of that most tyrannical passion, Chrysostom says, jealousy. Unwilling to cause Mary distress to expose her to public disgrace, he planned to dismiss her discreetly. Joseph, therefore, refused to act according to the law, but chose to act in a manner that Jesus himself would later exemplify by his attitude towards known sinners. So we see here, number one, I want to say out of those first few verses here, that biblical manhood is using the strength you have to show mercy and be present to those outside the bounds, because Mary was now clearly outside the bounds of cultural norms. Having been found pregnant, he shows mercy. he He could ask for her to be punished as an adulteress, Deuteronomy 22. She could be put to death. Now, it's understood that most Jews at this time were not practicing the death penalty for adultery, but were using divorce. But he could have asked for that in a public show of this. The second thing I want to say about the life of Joseph is that biblical men save life. Biblical men save life. Biblical manhood is about preserving life, not taking that which you can never give back because you're not God. Even when we can culturally seek death, the life of one who is or might be a sinner, a wicked person, biblical men look to see what is the redemptive path forward in this context if possible. He was a righteous man. He was considered just. He followed Torah. He was following the ancient laws of Judaism. And yet, here he is unwilling to deliver Mary to the punishment of the law. He errs on the side of grace and mercy. Biblical manhood number three is goodness is defined by Jesus. It means good, compassionate, being good and compassionate and pleasing to God. Well, this flips up aside all of our cultural ideals we want to be right and we want to rule and reign with our rightness. We want justice on our side, whether it's the progressive justice of the left or the, or the justice of the conservative right. We want justice and then we weaponize justice and then we make world, the, the world we live in a hellish place because we're seeking after that. Sometimes what transforms the world is compassion and mercy and love that creates a new condition for humanity to thrive. Biblical men save life he could have demanded life biblical men seek the goodness defined by Jesus the third what does it mean to be a biblical man the apostle paul which we'll pick up in the new year in second corinthians speaks of the holy fool And Joseph, in some contexts, is being a holy fool for the sake of something much greater. Foolishness in the eyes of those around him. He will now carry shame with him for his whole life. Mary will. Mary said yes to God and chose to carry shame for her whole life within a high honor and shame culture because something greater was going to break through. But God is always looking for those people that are willing to risk. What, is it, what will make me look a little silly? What will make me not look necessarily what the ideal cultural man or ideal cultural woman looks like? There's power in this. And so following God's work and call may make you a fool in the eyes of those around you, and you will have to carry some of that shame, maybe some loss of reputation, and Joseph was willing to do that. But there is also joy in holy foolery as well. And this is one way God changes the world. Merry Christmas, everyone. (laughs) We're talking about divorce and sex and marriage, yes, and shame and foolery, yes. It's all in the Christmas story. And so the text continues on. Are you still with me? Say amen. All right, all right. Harry would ask, are you having a good time? Are you having fun? All right, all right, all right. (laughs) Remember the modified definition. Fun is you're not six feet under. Okay. Joseph. Joseph, son of David, verse 20, the last half B. Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. So the angel appears to Joseph in a dream to tell him, this is not what you think it is. This is not what every natural, every, every, there's, an, there's a divine exception going on here. And Joseph's family lineage is named here by the angels. Well, Joseph, son of David, which is to clue us all in on the importance of Joseph in the story as well. Joseph is the tie-in, is one of the tie-ins to the history of Israel, to the kingship of David. Joseph, son of David, in Matthew's account, the lineage through Joseph is named. The angel addresses Joseph. In Luke, we learn that Mary is also visited by an angel, Gabriel, as well. In fact, we were joking about this. Someone asked me, can, can we sing the song, Mary, Did You Know, at the Christmas Eve service? And, and I have made some very strong statements about this song in the past, and I would like to confess that they were not inspired by the Holy Spirit. But my answer to that is, did she know? Well, according to Luke chapter 1, the angel did come to Mary and did tell her, that, which is that she did know. <laughs> did she know the fullness of the crucifixion, the fullness of the pain? Well, it seems in her prophetic song, she indicates some of that, but... If you've ever moved into prophetic words of the Holy Spirit, you may not always know the full application of what that looks like. Did Mary fully know? Probably not. So can we sing the song? Yes, but it's not my favorite, but yes. But she knew, okay? She knew. The answer is yes, she knew. Should she know the fullness of it? Probably not. How could anyone know the fullness of the fullness of Jesus until he comes again? Not even Mary would know that, but anyway. All right. That was not in my notes, but that's just extra. It's just us today. It's a snow Sunday. Chill out. We'll be okay. (laughs) Home church people, well, most home churches aren't meeting during the holiday break here, but listening back to this, they'll be like, what was going on in that room? Well, I hope you feel that way. You should be in this room. There's always something going on when we gather together, face-to-face community. Holy Spirit does stuff and sin, so here we go. Um, Michael Card wrote this wonderful uh, reflection on this passage. He says, the point is, before the angel came to Joseph in the dream, and before he explained the true cause of Mary's pregnancy, Joseph had already decided not to harm her, not to take full advantage of his legal rights under the Torah. In fact, it seems Joseph was willing to take upon himself the guilt that he thought was Mary's guilt. Ooh, that's biblical manhood right there, taking on others' guilt for the sake of something redemptive. And this is all we know about the heart of Joseph. Card goes on and he says, But it's all we need to know. The first character in the Gospel of Matthew with whom the first hearers in Matthew's community would resonate. His predicament is a parable of theirs. Like them, he faces a difficult decision to maintain the status quo of the old orthodoxy or to follow a new and wonderful dream from God at enormous personal cost. And Joseph. Oh, by the way, Card points out, he is named after the Joseph that we know of from the Exodus story. The namesake of Joseph, the dreamer, clearly chooses to follow the dream. And though his life is made vastly more difficult as a result, on every hand, he is protected by God. And Matthew's first hearers are being called to have reason to embrace the same hope of a God who is at work in the world in unexpected ways. And the angel says to him, do not be afraid. Say it with me, do not be afraid. afraid. Do not be afraid. Number four, I would say biblical manhood is naming fear, is naming our emotions and still choosing to risk in light of new information and experiences. Biblical manhood is not simply about conserving and staying in exactly the same status quo. It's also about naming fear and emotions and still choosing to risk in light of new information and experiences. When the Holy Spirit begins to move in special ways, fear can be our initial reaction. What's going to happen? How are things? I don't understand. This is new territory. Well, that's exactly it. It is new experience. When God shows up through angels or other ways, do not be afraid is common communication. In Luke, it comes again and again and again. Luke chapter 1, 13 and verse 30 and two ten, and Matthew 14, Matthew 28. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. And that's not to tell you to go into some like mental gymnastics, but rather that yes, there's fear, but continue to move forward. Do not be paralyzed. Do not be paralyzed. Do not be paralyzed. But step forward would maybe be a better way for us to hear that. What can we be paralyzed by? What can we be afraid of? Fear of what's happening now as the Holy Spirit is moving. Fear of what it means to the current situation and the people around you. Fear of change for the new conditions the Holy Spirit will create. Do not be afraid for what is conceived is of the Spirit. Now unlike many ancient other myths, Gods would have sexual relations with maidens and conceive. This is important to note for those that want to say, well, all of these myths, aren't they all the same? There's similarities for sure, but this is different. There's a spirit begotten generation of the Holy Spirit, not some other being taking the form of a man here. It is the spirit, him, the spirit itself, himself, engaged in some way with Mary. So this is different from other ancient Near Eastern myths. I don't want to say any more about that. I'm just going to let that one go. All right. We're almost done. Hang with me. Biblical manhood is about humility. Say it with me, humility. Joseph had to be humble to move forward in this relationship, which, make no mistake, would be seen as humiliating by all of his fellow menfolk and most womenfolk as well in the first century. He had to choose a path of humility, holy foolery humility. Choosing to walk in that path is so hard for most of us, and yet that's part of biblical manhood humility. Verse 21, and she will bear a son and you are to name him Jesus and you Joseph are to name him Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Yeshua or Yehoshua means Yahweh is help and the redeemer of his people. Hauerwas writes about this, yet Joseph is still required a revelation so that he would know the character of Mary's pregnancy God speaks to Joseph. Joseph isn't just doing this blindly. He's taking a, a sort of an open-eyed kind of approach to faith, not blind faith. He's given the honor, though, to name Jesus as the new Jehoshua or Joshua. The old conquered the promised land, the old Joshua, the new Joshua, Harawas says, is sent to save his people from their sins, to live as people of the promise. And hang with me, we're almost to the end here, folks. She will bear a son and you are to name him. You are to name him. You are to name him is to acknowledge Jesus as his adopted son. And so Joseph is the adopted father of Jesus in the New Testament. He brings him in. And this is important to note because in that Joseph's naming of him as is fully embracing this child as his own son. That's powerful if you think about it. And we think about the configurations of family and here the first holy family before Joseph and Mary have their own biological children which we are told they most likely do. There's some debate on that depending on Eastern Orthodox Catholic but most Protestants would say they did have their own children. But at this point, we see this holy family being configured here through this adoption. You are to name him and that act of naming is also a legal act of adoption because he is going to save them from their sins. This Old Testament hope and the focus in the Old Testament hope of the Messiah was very large, but it's interesting, Matthew focuses specifically on our destructive patterns, our anti-love choices, or what we want often call sin. It's not about national liberation at this stage. It's not about all those other things that they were looking for. It's first and foremost about setting us free from what binds us as persons and as people. The passage does not end on shame, but ends on breaking shame and deliverance from sin, personal and social sin, that you can live differently. You can have a different life. There's a different way of being human. Do you know Jesus? Have you experienced the joy of forgiveness from the creator? You can through Jesus, for he will save us from our sins. And then finally, the passage continues. All of this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophets. Look, quoting the Greek version of Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, look, the virgin shall become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. Biblical manhood, by the way, number six, is also to submit to God's promptings. You are to name him Jesus, submit to God's promptings, and to continue on. And all of this took place to fulfill. Jesus is God's helping, redeeming, protecting his people, all of the people, to expand the kingdom of God. Mary, we are seen as a second Eve, but she's also an Abraham. She obeys God's call to leave the familiar, and she's beginning of the church, the first to say yes to the Holy Spirit. And so we look at this, look, the virgin shall become pregnant and give birth to a son, and shall name him Emmanuel, meaning God with us, God with us, all of us, God who accepts ultimate vulnerability as an infant to the poor and humiliated parents into a world hostile to his presence, and he saves us. Craig Keener says, oppressors must hate such a God. For such a God abandons power, uh, his abandonment of power for love is contrary to everything they stand for. Every person who misuses the name of Jesus about power over to try to force change instead of saying, how can we be transformed from the inside out by the work of the Holy Spirit through outrageous love which takes us all the way to the life of the world to come? Oppressors must hate such a God, and God forgive us when we in spiritual leadership act more like an oppressor instead of those that come alongside and come from below and empower. For this God abandons power for love, and it's contrary to everything they stand for. But the broken and the oppressed find in him a savior that they can trust. In a world where trust is generally dangerous, God embraces pain with love. Us, God is with us in Jesus. Emmanuel, this title, he is with us. He will save his people because he is with us. Seven, and then I got to land it. I know. Amen. All right. We're getting there. Biblical manhood learns the context of history. This is so good. Biblical manhood learns the context of history. Joseph is hearing this. He must have known the Hebrew Bible. He must have known the prophets He's probably relaying this or someone who is near to him, who he told this to, relays this to Matthew. So Matthew's relaying it to us. And so many men don't know history, their own history and those around them. And here a prophet is being quoted. And so there's a tie in here. There's something about history. The biblical manhood understands that we have to know what moment are we in and how, what can we learn from the context around us? Context matters. And so many people